The text for this morning is from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, good morning. Welcome. All right, you guys are awake. Um, I don't know what it means that two or three people this morning have said to me, all right, don't embarrass your wife. So uh, maybe that's what they were talking about, that statement there. But um, so I'm going to try not to do that. Um, Mitch is gone on his anniversary, 12 happy years. Um, mostly happy, he said to me. I don't know. I'm just kidding. 12 happy years. And uh, so he asked me to fill in for him this morning, and I'm going to I'm going to give it a go here. Um, I, I'm excited. I'm I'm thrilled to be here and to be digging into this text in particular with you. Uh, there's so much richness here, and um, and I am terrified as I usually am when when I stand up here and claim to tell you um, I'm going to tell you what this means. Uh, I'm going to help you understand. The Word of God, that is a terrifying and, and heavy thought. And so um, let me pray, and then let's, let's see if we can just jump in and, and get through this. Um, and I'll, I'll try to not pull a Mitch Jolly and spend 57 minutes or whatever. All right, we'll cut that from the tape. Um, <laughs> all right, let me pray. Father. May you order our affections this morning. Father, you put Christ forward as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation for our sins, that you might reconcile us to yourself. And you have given him a name above all names. And Father, I pray that our hearts would honor him to that degree. And I pray that everything else would line up appropriately, that we would love things as much as they should be loved. Father, help us this morning to see Jesus. He stands forth in all of history, in all of time and space, in the universe. He is unique, he is glorious, and he is worthy of all praise and honor. And um, Lord, I pray that we would see that. Open your word to us. May we see Jesus because he is plainly there. And if we can't see him, open our eyes, fix us to see him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All 
All right. Um, I'm excited to get into this text because I have a um, I have what some people might call a little bit of a personality defect. Some of you just agreed with me and you don't even know what I'm going to say yet, um, as Carl does this in the back. Uh, I have what some may, may deem as a little bit of a personality defect. It's something that, that kind of plagues me that I'm, I'm working through and, and trying to learn to rest in the simple goodness of God. And what I mean, what I'm talking about is I have a, a penchant for deep, I guess, intricate philosophical and moral arguments. And, and, you know, I like to take problems. I like Rubik's Cube type issues that I can take and try to break apart and understand and explain. And um, I got an education degree because I love teaching things. I love taking complicated things and trying to understand them and make them understandable and simple for for other people to grasp. And um, I say that's a little bit of a defect because that's fun and exciting to me. But what it means is that when I go to the Bible sometimes... I get in there and I'm automatically looking for really deep, heavy, intricate problems that I can wrestle with and understand. And I always want to get to the new and the fascinating and the thing that, that nobody has ever seen or I've, I've never come across before. And I want to discover that. And that is what the Colossians were dealing with to some degree. They had a fascination with spiritual powers in the heavenlies and all these these weird metaphysical things. And, and Paul writes to them and he says, I, I want to help you understand something. There is an order in the universe. Okay, There are spiritual powers and there are, are human social structures and things that you should understand. But before any of that matters, what matters is who reigns over all of that. And you, Colossians, are missing this. You're, or at least you're at risk of missing this because you're so fascinated with angels and how they work and, and other spiritual powers. And so Paul comes to them and says, he just opens the book. He greets them and, and gives them a little bit of introduction. And then he goes right into just glory. I mean, glorious propositions about Jesus Christ. And he says, you want to be concerned about something, get this, know this first and foremost. And so um, so I, what I'm learning is that it's, it's fun and good to wrestle with problems. And it's necessary to wrestle with problems, especially when you run across problems in the Bible. We're going to deal with one of them today in this text. It's a very big, glaring problem, possibly, that millions of people miss all over the world in this text and we're going to deal with that but when i'm when i was all this is coming from when mitch asked me to preach every time he does that it's like i get one chance to tell you all these things and and how do i choose i mean there's the whole bible here that we all need to know what do i pick what do i choose and and my tendency is to try to go find those those paradoxes and those you know, just weird things that we need to learn to reconcile in our minds. And Jesus has just, for lack of a better expression, he has slapped me in the face these past two weeks and said, no, no, you be content in me. You know who I am. You learn me. I am not a philosophical puzzle. 
All right? Jesus says, Jesus is a historical figure, a man who was God. You can, there's, there's your philosophical problem right there. There's your, your big thing to wrestle with, your big puzzle. Um, and, and Jesus stands forth in time and space and he says, this, everything you see, everything you think, everything you wrestle with, all the problems you see in the universe, I am the answer to all of it. It's all about me. And so don't miss that. Um, and so as I was reading and trying to find something to deliver a message on I, i've read through probably the whole new testament and just you know what am i going to preach on and this passage just slapped me in the face and said here he is don't miss jesus christ and so i want to take you through just a few i mean paul gives you everything here that you need to know in terms of, he, he gives you hard, concrete propositions about Jesus, all right? And so I'm just going to walk you through them one by one, and let's just see what they mean. What does Paul mean? See if we can feel the weight of what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians. And so let's just jump right in. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop. <laughs> um there's here's a sermon, okay? Uh, I sent a text to to Brad and Michelle and um, my wife yesterday and said, "All right, I've been reading and thinking and praying and writing for three hours, and I'm on the first phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. So I, this may be an entire sermon on He is the image of the invisible God, but I think we can get through it um, without it taking too long. So let's just let's just jump into that. The Apostle John tells us in, in John 1.18, okay, he opens up his, his gospel, within the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And 18 verses into that, he throws this phrase out there. He says, no one has ever seen God. Okay? And you keep reading through his, his gospel, you get four chapters in, and Jesus is at uh, the well, and the Samaritan woman comes up, and, and Jesus tells her, she says, should we worship in Jerusalem or here? And, and Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so two, two things right there in the beginning of John's gospel seem to tell you something's different here about God, that he is not like me. He's not this tangible, physical being, all right? No one has ever seen him. He is spirit. And so, in fact, if we go all the way back... In the Old Testament, we get to the Ten Commandments. And what is the second commandment that God gives? You shall not make any carved image in my image and worship it. Right? Um, he, he tells them, don't make any carved images. Don't try to represent me with something physical. God's point in that is, I don't have a body, a physical image, and don't try to substitute something for me. Don't take something lesser and worship it as me, all right? Because I'm not like you. And um, in fact, when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he warns them against idolatry. He says, uh, when, when he went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, God said, gather all the people, I'm going to speak to them. And Moses says, 
you saw the smoke and the fire and you heard God speak. And then down in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. He warns him, he says, be careful. Don't try to assign a physical image to God, okay? Because he's not like you. Don't try to make him like you or like something that you can understand or put in a box or make sense of. Because God has says, no, you will worship me and I am transcendent and I am a spirit and I rule and reign over everything that is. And so it's sin. And for all of history, we have this, it is sin for finite man to create a physical representation of God and, and worship it. And Paul comes to the Colossians and he blows their mind here. And um, I guess the best way to say it is that sin for us to do, to make something and say this is God. But it is not sin for God to give us a physical representation. For God to give us an image. It is not sin for God to take on a physical body and reveal himself to humanity. And that's what he did in Jesus. Okay? Um, I referenced John 1.18 a minute ago. And I intentionally didn't finish that verse. Some of you may have finished it for me in your mind. But I intentionally didn't finish it. It says, no one has ever seen God. So here's God. No one has ever seen God. And then he says, the only God... Who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see the Trinity at work here? No one has ever seen God but the only God, the Father. The only God who sits at the Father's side. Forgive me. Sits at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus has come as a physical representation of God. Everything that God is is in Jesus Christ. All right? He even says in, 12, in John 12, 45, Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And then maybe the, the best, clearest place in the New Testament, Brad referenced a minute ago in, in communion, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? The image of God. So those who are perishing, what's their problem? That their eyes have been blinded, that they have not seen the glory of God in Christ, or the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul gives us both of those in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, two verses later, he says, For God, who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So look at those two side by side. You've got... Um, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Okay, 
If you want to behold the glory of Christ, if you want to if you want to know Christ, know that he is the image of God. He is the perfect representation of God. And if you want to know the glory of God, know that you will find that in the face of Christ Jesus. Okay, that's that's not the big philosophical problem. And some of you maybe feel like I'm already, you know, trying to trying to uh, break things so I can put them back together. But. There's a point here that my point in all of that is that when Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, it's not a throwaway phrase. Paul is not unintentional. He's not he's not just throwing words on a page. That phrase is absolutely packed with meaning and implication. And it it really, really affects how we read the Bible and how we deal with the world and how we think about God. And so I'm going to give you the biggest implication, I think, of that. And, um, and then you can sort out the others as you read and pray. But um, the biggest one, I've already said it a dozen different ways. If you want to know God, know Jesus. Okay? If you want to know God, know Christ. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. He took all of God's invisible perfection. Right? He took all of it and clothed it in flesh that we may be able to see it. And everything he said and did was a perfect display of God's character and God's will. In fact, there was another group, a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, and they took the law, which was intended to show us the character of God, and they, they distorted it and they twisted it and they put it on people as burdens and Jesus condemned them. And he said, you, you are saying this is what God is like. It's not what God is like. I am what God is like. You've missed the whole point. You're putting all these regulations on people about how they observe the Sabbath and how they eat and how they wash their hands. And Jesus said, you're missing it. You're missing the whole character and purpose of God in that. Don't miss it. So he revealed that to us, and, and he showed himself as master over creation by multiplying fish and bread and healing the sick and, and giving sight to blind people. And he vindicated the righteousness of God by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. So that God might be just, you know this in Romans 3? You run across this text that says that God put Christ forward. This is what I prayed at the beginning. God put Christ forward as a propitiation so that he might be just, so that God would remain just and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you understand what that means? Here, here's another philosophical problem for you. Does anybody lay in bed at night and say, God, how can you be merciful to me? That's wrong. You are a righteous judge. I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. How dare you be merciful to me? You're going to, to completely ruin your own perfect character and righteousness. It's not a problem we often deal with, right? We don't, that, that doesn't feel very comfortable as humans. How can I look at God and say, God, you be careful of your character. Don't be nice to me because I don't deserve it. All right. Don't ruin your character by being kind and merciful to me. But that is the problem in the universe. You understand that? How could God, a perfect, righteous, holy God, be merciful? 
to people who have spit on his glory and said, nope, I don't want it. I'm going to defame that. I'm going to tear that down. How can God look at us and say, I will not destroy you. I will make you my children. The only way he does that is if there's, there's some payment for that sin. All right? So Jesus, Paul says in Romans, Jesus came forth. God put him forward as a propitiation so that he would not become unjust in forgiving sinners. There's a great example in the Old Testament of David. We've talked about this here before, I think. David, an adulterer, a murderer, right? And Nathan comes to him and gives him this analogy about a man who stole sheep. And and David said, that man should die or should be in trouble or whatever he says. And Nathan says, you are the man. You have done this. And David says, oh my gosh, you're right. And he breaks down and Nathan says, God has put your sin away. God has put your sin away, David. Don't worry about it. He has, he has swept it under the rug. He has put it away. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. How can God, the righteous judge of the world, say to David, don't worry about that one. No big deal. The only way God can put that sin away is if it's paid for somewhere else. And that's what Christ did. So, so, Christ came, he represented, he he gave us an image of God. And then he died to vindicate God's righteousness so that God may be just, even though he had declared ungodly people righteous. Jesus shows us that God is both holy and loving. He is just and merciful. And so, All that God is resides in Christ. Hebrews, there's a great parallel passage to this in Hebrews 1. Okay, everything we just read in Colossians, go read the first five, six, eight verses of Hebrews. It's it's almost a parallel of this. And the author of Hebrews says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul says a few verses later in Colossians that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. My point in all of this is we don't go anywhere else to know God. Okay? We don't we don't do this mystical thing where we we go away from historical truth about Jesus and we say I'm going to know God over here. I just I feel him. I I you know just go out and I see something and I think, "Oh, that's what God's like." There, God is, has revealed himself in nature, but he has clarified and codified all of that in the historical truth about Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And so my point is, if you want to know God better, don't, don't fall into this trap of vague God talk. All right? That's, that is so rampant. One, one of my biggest frustrations with Christian music is it's almost a, like a game. Like, how can we avoid actually saying the name of Christ in, in this song? Okay, how, can I actually, how can I get past that? Can I use he and him and you and whatever and every pronoun in the English language but not say Jesus Christ? Or, you know, something like this. That's a, a frustration for me because it, it makes for a really nice, comfortable, broad application and it makes it easy for me to talk to anybody if we, we just keep it in the vague God realm because I can interpret the name God 
as many ways as I want, and you know, we don't have to necessarily agree on all the specifics, but when you say Jesus, suddenly there's concreteness there. There is, wait a minute, you're, I don't know if I like where you're going with this. You keep talking about Jesus, and Jesus was a real figure in history that I can't make into this nebulous thing, even though people try quite a bit. But, but my point is, if you want to know God better, if you want to, you want to really understand God better, go to Jesus. Look to Jesus. <clears throat> and that's, that's Old Testament and New Testament. Don't hear me negate the Old Testament in that. Because, anybody remember a little story from Luke about two disciples after Jesus raised from the dead and they're walking to Emmaus? Remember that? Now look at this group over here. They're, I can't think of Emmaus without thinking... Uh, these guys involved in the, the walk to Emmaus. But um, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears with these two disciples. And they talk and, and they tell him, we're sad because Jesus died and we thought he was going to set up his kingdom and whatever. And it says that Jesus made clear to them that the Christ should die and be raised from the dead. And then it says that as they walked, he started with Moses and the prophets, Old Testament he started with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You get that? Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He has finally and fully revealed himself to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know God, go there. All right? Know Jesus Christ. Don't miss him. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, good. That one took longer than I'd hoped. But that's good. These other ones are, are less long. Um, shorter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here's, here's the second longest, I guess, because here's a, a little bit of a dilemma. Paul calls Christ the firstborn of creation, and it matters a great deal what he means by firstborn. All right? He's biblically, firstborn is used in, in two, at least two different ways. It literally means the first of several offspring of the same kind, like the firstborn son or the firstborn cow or sheep or goat or whatever, the first of several of the same kind. But it's also used figuratively because the firstborn son historically had more significance, right? God uses this phrase in the Old Testament um, that any, he, he tells them not to, uh, sell or kill the firstborn calf or lamb or goat or any creature that opened the womb. That's a weird biblical expression for you. But it's their significance about that firstborn, all right? And so sometimes that word is used figuratively to indicate that significance, that importance, that it is more significant, better, higher, more honorable than the others. And it matters which way Paul is using it right here. Um, so how, how is he using it? Does Paul mean that Christ is the firstborn of creation in the same way that, that John Smith, my older brother, true name, John Smith, is not an alias? Um, it, it, does he mean that in the same way that John Smith is the firstborn of my parents? 
that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning John was the firstborn child in our family, followed by two other boys, me and my younger brother Daniel. And really, in regards to origin and basic nature, there's no distinction. We came from the same place. The difference is John was the first, right? Is that how Paul means it, that he is the firstborn? Don't brush that off too quickly. Some of you are already, you've already nailed down the answer in your mind. But don't be careful to just gloss over that. Don't brush it off too quickly because um, if, if that's what Paul means, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation in the sense that he was God's first and therefore most significant creation, we have a huge problem. A huge problem. If Jesus is firstborn of creation in the, in the sense that he was created first and then like him everything else was created that's a huge problem and so some of you have already settled that can't be right because we believe jesus is god the bible clearly teaches jesus is god eternally existent with the father but millions of people don't believe that or they and they they look at this text and they say no no jesus is the firstborn of creation meaning he was created um, there are a lot of people that believe that Jesus is not the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, but rather he is literally God's firstborn son, God's premier creation. And if you're like my wife, maybe in the last month or so, you've had one of these people knock on your door and you've had a little discussion with them, and we call them Jehovah's Witnesses, right? 18 million in the U.S. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is God's most significant creation, literally God's firstborn son. He didn't exist, and then God made him. That's a problem because you may be familiar with this expression. We believe that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Recognize that? That is a central truth of historic orthodox christianity from the nicene creed that that we believe jesus is god and the jehovah's witnesses point to this text and they say no no jesus is the firstborn of creation in the same way that john smith is the firstborn son of my parents and everything else is is less significant because it wasn't the first so how do we deal with that how do we respond to that and um, I'm going to give you my best effort to argue that firstborn does not mean created. But know that I read, I, I kind of put this together and then I thought, I don't, that's, some people may not buy that one fully. So let me see if there are some other arguments out there. And there are tons of them. Great men of God who are brilliant people have, have gone to the Greek parsings of these words and whatever and, and made some really good intricate arguments um, to prove that Jesus Paul means here that Jesus is God, but I don't think it's that complicated. But if, if this is not good enough for you, go dig. There are arguments out there. Um, but I don't think it's that compu- complicated. In fact, I think that Paul gives us the answer right in the passage. Look at that phrase. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, etc., Note that four, and just a Bible study tip for you. When you see four used like that in the Bible, your argument radar should go up 
and start bleeping around. There's an argument coming. All right. Four means, hey, I'm about to give you the reason behind what I just said. I'm about to give you the because I'm going to defend and clarify whatever I just said. And so Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation for or because he created all things in heaven and on earth. Now, if he, if he meant that Christ was the first and therefore the most significant creation of God, it seems like he would have gone a different way. He wouldn't have said he's the firstborn of all creation because he created everything. He would have said he's the firstborn of all creation because the Father bestowed him with the honor as his first and highest creation or something like that. Paul could have been more clear there if he meant Jesus is not the creator God. But he didn't do that. He said he is the firstborn of all creation because he's the creator. And so I think what he means is when you look at everything there is, everything in the universe, in in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, everything that has ever existed, Christ is most significant. He is preeminent. He is the supreme being overall and worthy of all honor and praise and glory. He is the firstborn of creation. Some translations say he is, they, they make that for you. They solve that problem for you because they say he is the firstborn over creation. But that's my argument that Paul says right there in the text, he gives you the reason. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. He created everything, therefore he's most important in all of it. So don't miss that. He is the firstborn of all creation. Um, a couple more and then we'll be done. Um, I don't think I'm going to get through all of these today. This is just, there's so much richness there, and and I didn't plan to get through all of it, but maybe I was hoping to get a little further than I'm going to get. Um, Number three, Christ is the creator. I'll just touch on this one really briefly. Uh, Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things. Whatever is, is a result of Jesus Christ's creative power. Okay, you get that. And and notice the amazing description that Paul gives the Colossians here. He says he is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Notice that Paul's not just talking about physical and spiritual beings, but he's talking about positions and titles, and authority structures, and relational categories. Christ created the world and organized it and established a rule and authority. And he allows some rule and authority now that he won't always allow. Um, So he didn't just create us all and say, all right, figure it out, good luck. No, Christ established Authority structures, that's amazing to me. Dominions, he established those things. Um, And that includes Satan and demonic and angelic powers. As R.C. Sproul says, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. There is nothing outside of Christ's control and and the way he has ordered the world. Um, I feel a little parenthesis here. The creation is fallen and broken, but it should be a good theological wrestling for you. How is it then not outside of Christ's control? He created it a certain way. Now it's fallen and broken. So you could argue, well, it's not working the way Christ intended it to work. How is that not outside of his control? Just going to leave that for you. Um, 
But basically my point in all this is that Christ created all things. He created all authority structures. He created all dominions and rulers. And anything that rules or has authority, including Satan and demons, only does so at the good pleasure of Christ. Christ at any moment can say this far and no further. You will not go further. You will not do anything that I don't want you to do, Satan or demons. All right. And so don't give him more credit. That's probably Paul's point here to the Colossians because they had that unhealthy interest in spiritual powers and authorities. And Paul says, you want to be impressed with some authority. You want to be impressed with some power. Look at who made all of that and allows it to exist. Look at Jesus Christ. In fact, he says he's the sustainer. The next one, that in him all things hold together. I stand here because it is God's good pleasure not to allow me to be be vaporized. All right. I stand here because, as Hebrews one says, that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. These are big things. We don't have time to dig into all of them, but wrestle with that. Hear that. We exist. This room does not collapse because Christ upholds it by the word of his power. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, Christ is the head of the church. Parentheses. Mitch has said a hundred times here, and I love it. I, I really appreciate this, that he recognizes this, and the pastors here recognize this. He says, we don't have a senior pastor at Three Rivers, all right? There's not one dude who runs this place, okay? We don't have a chief shepherd here among our staff. We have under shepherds, pastors submissive to the authority and will of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. This is his church, right? You are his church. And when you see people acting like this is their church, this is my church, and getting upset or, or causing divisiveness because something didn't work the way that I think my, my church should work, be careful. Red flags. Together, Jesus Christ is the head of this church, and everything we do should be to honor that headship. We submit to Him, and so, and, and if you feel like that is not happening, guess what? It's your job to say we are the body of Christ, and He is our head. So, brother, you are in sin, sister. You are in sin here. Let me love you and point you to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Honor Him. Um. Last, last two together here, this last phrase, and, and I'll tell you why I'm doing them together. So we've talked about he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator. He is uh, the sustainer. He is the head of the church. And then this, this morning I woke up and I thought, something's missing here. I, I've been wrestling with this text for a few days and I thought, I'm not there. I'm not, I haven't hit the heart of it yet, the meat of it. I haven't hit the point of all of this or, or the, the pinnacle of all of this, what is missing. And my problem was I quit reading. I stopped halfway through a thought here because I was going to finish with Christ is the firstborn from the dead. If you look in verse 18, it says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I stopped there. And there's a period there in, in the ESV, in my the, the translation that I read. There's a period there. But this, notice that next word. Let's just do it that way. Notice, what's the next word? 
four. So the thought's not finished. Paul said he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And here's a little more clarification, a little more defense of that. Here's why. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so I looked at that and I thought, I went through this whole thing of he is the firstborn from the dead. Here's that firstborn problem again. Okay, Christ was not the first person to be raised from the dead. Right? Lazarus. Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. Okay, so what does it mean that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? Now, this is a little different because he actually did raise from the dead, whereas he was not a created being, but he actually did raise from the dead, but he wasn't the first. So what does it mean that he was the firstborn from the dead? And I think, again, the answer is his resurrection is the most significant. Okay, because in Christ, Christ's resurrection was dramatically different than Lazarus or the widow of Zarephath's son. How so? They were raised temporarily, right? Physically, temporarily. The widow from Zareph, of Zarephath's son, raised from the dead by Elijah, what did he have to look forward to? Death. He was going to die again. Lazarus, raised to die. Raised to die, right? Raised from the dead to die. Raised physically to die. And Jesus is raised from the dead, and in, in his resurrection, he establishes a new resurrection. Okay? Romans 6 says if, if we have died with Christ through faith, we died with him, we have died to our sins. And because he rose from the grave, we believe we will be raised in a resurrection like his, an eternal, perfect resurrection free from sin. It's a whole different ballgame. And so Christ is the firstborn from the dead that he may be preeminent in all things for, last point, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Here is the, the culmination of all history. All right? Here's the apex. Here's where it comes together. Here is where Christ's significance is seen most clearly. That he is the most important, here is the most important truth in all of human history, that Jesus Christ is the reconciliation. Okay? The image of God, the firstborn of creation, the creator, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, put on flesh and lived among us and let us kill him. He let his creation kill him. That's significant. Reconciliation implies that there was hostility. And Paul answers that again in the text. Just keep reading. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He reconciled. We were enemies. Let that land on you. If you've missed that, if you haven't given that the weight that it deserves, we were not just wayward, okay? We weren't just making stupid decisions, and God kind of laughed at us and said, let me put you the right way here. 
No, we were hostile to God. We were enemies. And while we were enemies, the image of God, the firstborn of creation, the creator, the sustainer of all things, took on flesh and let rebellious people kill him so that he could reconcile us and make peace by the blood of his cross. Don't miss that today. Jesus Christ is is it. He is the pinnacle of all things. He is to be exalted above all things. Um, so don't don't get distracted. Don't miss him. Don't miss that significance that Jesus Christ all that he is, the perfect representation of God, is the reconciliation. He is peace with God. If you want peace with God, if you want to know God, if you want to love God, if you want to walk with God, Jesus Christ is the way. All right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is the reconciliation, and therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Just fun parallel there. He created all things in heaven and on earth. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Father, you have been gracious to us in sending your son. And that those words are not enough. They don't capture the weight of that truth. And so, Father, I pray again, order our affections. That is the weightiest truth in the universe. That Jesus Christ is God and died to reconcile us to you. Father, I pray that we would cherish that above all things. That our hearts would love that and exalt that to the degree that it deserves. Father, that it would not be second or third or fourth. But Father, that, that Christ would be first and foremost in all things. The preeminent in all things. Father, that includes our hearts. Make him preeminent in our hearts. As we join together and sing... For the next few minutes, Father, may we see him in these songs. May we sing lyrics that exalt Christ and may we rest in him. And may this be sincerity, not just words, not just actions, not empty songs. Father, may this be full of honesty, full of sincerity. And if it's not, may we cry out to you. And may you open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly. Take the veil off of our face, Father, that we may see him and behold him and become like him, that he may be exalted in all things because he's worthy of it. So, Father, you have given him a name above all things, above all other names. May we honor that name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.